Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with Nir Kassar, founder of Unison Advisors and Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. As you'll see from the discussion, Nir casts a wide net of knowledge and can talk in-depth on the markets, public policy, investing strategies, market history, asset allocation, and much more. In my opinion, Nir's Bloomberg articles and the topics he writes about are a must-read for investors looking to learn and expand their knowledge on investing, and his insights shine through in this podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Nir Kassar. Nir, how are you? Thank you for jumping on with us today. I'm well. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, how long have you been writing for Bloomberg? Um, five years. I think I, I joined the original Gadfly. You know, Bloomberg launched this Gadfly. It was sort of like a quick, quick sort of commentary site back in 2015. And I was one of the original sort of crew on that. And that was fall of 2015. That eventually got um, merged into Bloomberg View into one opinion platform, which is Bloomberg Opinion. And um, so all, 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 you know, if you consider if both things together, I've been doing this for about five years. Yeah. I mean, one thing you've had like a front row seat to sort of like the evolution of Bloomberg as a, I guess, sort of news type company, even though you're writing opinion pieces. I mean, I personally, I subscribe to Bloomberg. So not the terminal, but the actual sub- subscription service. And I mean, I think there's some, I mean, there's some like top notch, super talented journalists and reporters, obviously at Bloomberg. Um, and I must say like your, you know, your articles um, are always very good. And I have sort of a short list of, Thank you. you're welcome. I have a short list of guys that I'm always trying to read Jason Jwag. There's some Barron's guys, but you know, when your stuff comes up, um, I always try to get on it. I don't know if you have like a certain publication schedule, but it's good stuff. Thanks very much, Justin. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I try to, you know, I try to stay on the page regularly, although, you know, it's it's uh, it's not always easy, particularly because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm disinclined to put anything out unless I think it's fully baked. And sometimes, you know, as you know, you write, you guys write also. Sometimes it takes, you know, four hours to bake something and sometimes it takes two weeks to bake something. So you just never know how it's going to go. How do you come up with uh, your topics? Because one of the things I noticed about your articles is you definitely write about a wide array of different topics. Like what is your, what is your process in terms of thinking about, because for me benefiting, I would benefit a lot from that because I write a lot myself. Like what, what do you do to come up with your topics? Well, you know, for me, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit better and worse than it is for say a blogger in the sense that um, a blogger is free to write about whatever they want there's no editorial process, right? Whereas when you write for a media company, there is an editorial, pro- you have an editor, you know, you talk about the things you're interested in with your editor, you agree together that this is something that's worth doing. And so, you know, a lot of times the things that I want to write about, you know, my editor's like, nah, that's boring or that's a horrible idea or please don't do that or whatever. Um, and sometimes my editor will come to me and say, hey, I think this is really interesting. Have you thought about this? And then I'll pick up a topic that he or she suggests. Um, but in general, you know, I have a, I, I just like to, I think I, I've always been a fan of multidisciplinary approaches. In general, I think if you write about markets, you'll be a better writer 
if you also think about economics and public policy and you know so in general i think i think casting a wide net is always a good idea to the extent that there are writers listening to this and just you know want to want to hack for that i in my opinion the hack is to read as broadly as possible so you know don't follow just you know you know fintwit don't just read financial columnists i read a broad and you'll see actually how much of the outside world informs your particular subject matter and um and yeah i'm just interested in a lot of different things so i would say you know economics you know markets public policy those are basically i would say my sort of by three go-to's well i have the same thing with the editor who tells me when my ideas are terrible it just turns out it's justin um so <laughs> he protects me from writing any of these pieces that shouldn't that should never make their way on the internet Everyone should have an editor. I firmly believe that. Everyone should have an editor. It doesn't matter who it is. It could be your kids. Everyone should some somebody outside of themselves to say, you know, you've 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 just like you've lost it on this one. Because we all do it. Yeah, for sure. Uh Nier, you and I first met at a I don't know if you remember this, it was an ETF. I think it was a Bloomberg ETF conference um hosted by yeah. So and what um I always you were you were on a panel, it was like these, I think it was like I think Wes uh, Gray from Alpha Architects might have been one of the guests. And I think you guys were talking systematic value. And you just did such a great job um, moderating that panel that I, I just, you know, wanted to sort of make a recommendation to the um, Presidential Debate Commission that if they actually need more help, Nir Kassar is your guy. <laughs> yeah, that's entirely too kind. I can assure everyone watching this, but thank you, Justin. Very kind. <laughs> So I want to, let's get into the market. And stuff. by the way, um, I'd be happy to moderate that presidential debate, just for the record. There you go. Good luck with that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need it. <clears throat> um, so kind of getting into some of sort of the market stuff that we want to talk to you about. Um, you know, obviously the word unprecedented probably gets used too much in investing by too many people, but it does seem like the times we're in now are unprecedented to some extent, to a large extent. Um, obviously with the virus, the shutdown, the economy, the federal reserve, I mean, we can kind of get into sort of some of this, but, you know, one of the things I just wanted to sort of hear your thoughts on is, you know, as you look at the markets today and where we are, and given the fact that stocks are at all time highs, I mean, how are you digesting this and thinking about it? Um, and you know, just how would you, how are you looking at the market today, given what's happened, given what's transpired this year? Well, boy, that there's a lot of food for thought there. You know, I think you're touching though, Justin, on um, a macro sort of thought that I really like, which is that every environment is different. And if you're a markets observer, the, the tricky question is always, okay, but is this different in a way that matters? And, um, and obviously, you know, this environment is very different. This is the first pandemic in anybody's living memory. Um, global pandemic is anybody's living memory. Um, we certainly have a lot of political and social chaos. Probably that um, has, well, certainly that has not been seen in my adult lifetime. I'm older than I look, by the way. Um, but, you know, you probably have to go back to probably the 1960s to see this kind of like social and political upheaval. But the question is, what does this mean for markets? Does it mean anything? You know, does it make any difference? Because these things have happened before. Markets have been around a long time and markets are very smart. Um, what I would say is, I think for all of us, markets are really giving a master class in the way that at least stock markets work for all of us to watch in real time. And what I mean by that is that it's, um, 
you can look at uh, you can look at everything that's going on, and a lot of people are. And you can say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, we have all this upheaval, we have all this mess, the economy is in shambles, and yet the market is going up. What is going on there? And the answer is that the market doesn't care about any of that stuff. It doesn't care about the economy per se. It doesn't care about the social environment. It doesn't care about the political environment. It cares about one very specific thing. Well, one very specific thing, and that is the future of the companies that it tracks. And, 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 and bear in mind that the market, it does not care about all those companies equally. It cares about those companies on, based on the way that market is constructed. And in general, when people think about the market, they think about the S&P 500 or something like that. It's a market cap-based index. So it cares about a few companies a lot more than others. Um, and that's all it cares about. So when you're looking at the market, what is the market telling us? It's telling us that, that it thinks the consensus among investors is that those companies that, that predominate on the market, their futures are still as bright as they were, maybe brighter as they've ever been. That may be right, that may be wrong. I don't know, but that clearly is the consensus that's baked in. And that as a, and in general, I think if you're a student of market history, when you look at that, you say to yourself, okay, in times when markets have been expensive, as it is now, um, the earnings yield is low, the PE is high. In general, that tends to have, um, a, you know, it's sort of a, a muted effect on future returns. And so that's really all that we can say about the market right now is that, you know, it's doing what it has always done. And it's telling us that probably the returns going forward are not going to be, uh, are going to be lower. Let's just say are going to be lower than the historical average that's in the rear view. How do you look at the government response here? I mean, it's one of the things I've struggled with because on, on one hand, you know, we seem to be learning that the government can put, throw more money at the economy than we thought without triggering any inflationary problems or something like that. But then you also have people who are thinking, all right, eventually we're going to pay for this down the road with inflation, you know, with this massive of a stimulus. So I'm just wondering, how do you look at that? How do you look at that balance? You know, that's a very tough question because we're, you know, we're in, uh, talk about unprecedented, right? We're in uncharted waters here. I mean, we've spent $7 trillion. If you combine what Congress did and the Fed did together since March, roughly, you're talking about $7 trillion. You know, who's put $7 trillion on the, on the credit card in this country or in any country? You know, no one. So we don't know what the long-term impacts of this are going to be. Um, I have two thoughts about this. One is, I think it had to be done. I mean, I think the, um, I think the Fed response and the fiscal response was absolutely the right response. I think that's the lesson of, of the Great Depression, in my opinion. You know, when you, have, um, when you have this kind of slack, when you have this kind of shock to the economy, someone has to step in and has to plug the hole. And I think we did that ably. I worry that we're not going to get another round of stimulus. I personally think we need it. I've written extensively about that. Um, I think we need a big, bold uh, fiscal, uh, you know, uh, fiscal stimulus to get us through the rest of this. Fed Chair Powell uh, said as much, um, basically begged Congress to, to, to roll out more uh, stimulus on early on Tuesday. I think that's the right call. Um, in terms of what the impact on this is going to be, you know, it's very difficult to know, I, I think, but the one thing I will say is, I think that we should all be very humble about what, in our projections, you know, reflexively during, and you guys probably remember this, during the financial crisis, after all of the stimulus that came out from the Fed and, and to a lesser extent, Congress and the TARP and all that, the market narrative was here comes inflation and inflation never came. And Japan has been doing this for 30 years and inflation never came. And there are other examples that you can throw out and inflation never comes. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, is there a linear relationship between, you know, high, you know, running high, um, 
you know, fiscal deficits and piling on the national debt and inevitable inflation? And I think the answer has to be, we just don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to delve into MMT on you guys without being prompted, but, um, but, you know, just to say very briefly, as you know, MMT's theory is that it's not, it's not necessarily the case that by having more debt, you're necessarily going to kick up inflation. Um, and I think we at least have to be open to that possibility. And I think we have to say that has to be a longer term consideration. The near term consideration has to be putting food on the table of workers, millions of whom are out of work and may never get back to work in the near term. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. We interviewed Jim O'Shaughnessy on the podcast, and, and one of the biggest lessons I've taken from him is what you touched on there, which is the ability to say, I don't know. And, you know, we all want to have this opinion, or I know exactly how this is going to play out. And, you know, I think that's an important point. We need to take a step back and say, you know, none of us probably know exactly how we can have opinions, but none of us probably know how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, that's an important point. And also, you look, you guys are evidence-based investors, I would say, right? Um, you wouldn't fight me on that characterization. And, um, and, 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 and I think one of the things that I, first principles that I often come back to is what does that actually mean? And what it means, I think, as a guiding principle is the, the, whatever the proposition is, the burden has to be, now this is my, this is my lawyer training working, the, the, the burden of proof has to be on the proposition, right? In other words, whatever, the, if you say, you know, all these deficits are going to cause inflation, then I think then, then, the, then the proposition has to come forward and has to say, okay, here's the evidence for it. And it's got to meet the burden of proof. And if the burden of proof is not there, then we all have to say, sorry, not enough evidence, next question, or come back to us when there's enough evidence. And that's really what being an evidence-based investor is. And I think we don't do that enough. We have to do that. Speaking about evidence, um, one of the things many of us, you know, we're value investors. And one of the things many of us have struggled with is in the past decade, if you look at the things that have worked over, say, 100 years, many of them have not worked in the past decade, you know, whether it's value investing or, you know, even, even diversification, international investing. Many different things that you that work over the long term have not worked in the past decade. And I'm wondering, you know, that prompts a lot of people to say this time is different. These things don't work anymore. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and how, how you view what's gone on in the past decade for these things relative to their long term track records. So this might irritate some people, but I don't find I'm not particularly uh, fussed about all this, to be honest. Um, and uh, and I, let me let me let me explain just by way of analogy. Um, Think about the equity risk premium. Think about the proposition that stocks be bonds. If you ask people, hey, do you think stocks are gonna be bonds in the future? They'll probably say, I, to, to a person, I think they'll probably say, yeah. I mean, stocks are riskier, you know? And so if you take more risk, you'll get more returns. Yeah, stocks will be bonds. Okay, well, how do you know that? Well, we have all this evidence. We have like 100 years of data going back to 1926 or 1871 or, 19, or 1801, depending on whose data you trust and want to use or whatever. We have historical evidence that shows that there's been an equity risk premium. Okay, well, how do you know that's going to persist going forward? Because here's, here's, here's an interesting fact. Over the 20 years, beginning in 2000, to roughly 20 years, beginning in 2000, to June of 2020, bonds beat stocks. Bonds beat the S&P 500. So there's a 20-year period where the equity risk premium was upside down. So, I mean, doesn't that negate the equity risk premium? Well, no, no, that's just a one 20-year period. You're just cherry picking one 20-year period. I've got 100 years of data that shows that the equity, okay. Well, this is the same data that tells us, or at least that implies to us, that there's a value premium, that there's a size premium. It's the exact same proposition. So why are we saying that the equity risk premium is, go is, is fine, but all of a sudden value underperforms for 10 or 15 years and the value premium is gone? 
right? It's completely nonsensical. And the answer, I think, is that, you know, people have a tendency, I mean, this is not, I'm not breaking news here, but, you know, people have a tendency to, to, uh, to look in the rearview mirror and I think to lose sight um, of the longer term evidence. And I think there's a fixation right now with value um, that just seems to me to be completely nonsensical. Um, you know, we know that value disappears for long periods of time. And so it has disappeared, you know? Um, do I think that means that the value premium is dead? No. Do I think that means that the value premium will pay in the future? Not necessarily, obviously, but I have no reason to believe um, that that just because value has underperformed over the last 15 years, that it's gone forever. Talk about burden of proof. I just don't think the people who are, I don't, I don't think if you're, if you want to make that case, I think that's going to be a very difficult case to make. Sorry, Jay. What do you think about the arguments about certain facts being completely different? Like for instance, the Federal Reserve policy suppressing interest rates and people talking about how value does much better when either rates are higher or there's more inflation or you know, technology has changed the way the economy works in general. And so you know, these technology companies have such an advantage that value companies aren't going to do well anymore. Do you think there's any merit to any of that? Well, there could be, right? So, I mean, we can't say conclusively that there isn't merit, but you know, again, going back to sort of the burden of proof, I think if that were the proposition, you'd have to go back and you'd have to explain why that same theory didn't didn't prove true in in previous periods, right? So, um, you know, we've had various interest rate regimes historically, um, and those interest rate regimes don't necessarily align neatly with this theory that low interest rates favor growth stocks. You know, I'm sure you looked at the evidence as well as I have. Um, and and just to cherry pick one, you know, one one example that you've heard a million times that everyone's heard a million times. But I think is, 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 is you have to explain it, which is the late 90s, right? The late 90s was a period where everyone said, this is different, this is technology, you know, growth is going to win, blah, blah, blah. And then bang, from 2000 to 2007, value went in. Um, so why is this different than that period? You know, it just, it's going to be a very difficult argument to make. Let's put it this way. I would not want to make that argument. If you said to me, you know, if this was a, this was, I went to law school, if this was a, if this was a moot law, uh, you know, moot law argument, and you said to me, Nir, I'm assigning you the, the, um, the, the value is dead because technology is going to take over argument. I'd say, no, thanks. I don't have enough evidence for that one. Nir, I want to ask you, when you look at the market today and you look at, you, you mentioned this before that, you know, there's a handful of very large companies, mostly tech companies that are mo have led the market higher really over the last five years. I mean, you could carve out this year, you cover the last five years, but it's, it's the thing stocks. We all know what stocks are. Do you um, compare that? You know, do you, when you think about where that type of this type of market, do you look at things in the past, like, like the nifty 50 or other periods of time where you see similar comparisons and, you know, does that sort of concern you? Um, I mean, how do you, historical market analogies personally and not not because i think that they are exactly analogous obviously because every situation is slightly different but because i think they're instructive in the way that people interact with markets and what can happen when you have emotional human when you have emotional people interacting with markets and it seems to me if i was if i needed a if i was going to pull an analogy for the current environment um, the nifty 50 in my opinion would be the best one um, because, you know, when you, and I've written about this, um, as you probably know, I mean, there's, in the, you know, in the, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was this feeling that this new group of companies, I mean, the Nifty 50 is not, we should say, for 
people watching this, um, you know, the Nifty 50 is not, uh, is not, a, uh, is not a precise term. It re refers roughly to a group of companies that at the time people thought would just dominate, you know, the business environment and therefore markets forever. And so all you needed to do was own these handful of companies and you were set for life, you know. At the time, this was, you know, Kodak Eastman and did, uh, Disney and Coca-Cola, and there were many of them. And um, what happened was that, you know, this became the conventional wisdom. People piled in. The, the valuations of the Nifty 50 became demonstrably and, and I would say alarmingly higher than the rest of the market. And then when the sell-off came, it, you know, it had nothing really to do with the market per se. It happened to be an oil embargo in 1973, 1974 that crashed the market. When that happened, valuations deflated. And it just so happened that there was more room for these nifty 50 to deflate everything else. And when you look at the current environment, you see that also. I mean, you, you just, when you look at the FANG stocks, the valuations are demonstrably higher than the market in general. And so if you have an environment where inflation, where valuations are going to deflate, there's just more room for, de for deflation there. The other problem that you have is it's very difficult to know, you know, which of these companies are actually going to end up dominating, right? I mean, many of the Nifty 50 would be are unrecognizable. People have never heard of them to begin with. And the ones that you might have heard of, like Eastman Kodak, you know, where are they? So some of them won, some of them lost. Probably the same thing will be true for the FANG stocks. But that's where I think, you know, historical analogies are instructed, is they give you, I think, a lesson of, of what, what can happen when people get involved in markets and how the story may end. And... Yeah, I mean, I'm not concerned, but I think if you believe, if you have bought the narrative that five or six stocks are going to take over the U.S. economy, they're going to dominate business and the markets for the foreseeable future, I would say to you, there's no precedent for that in history. You might be right, but there's just, there's just, that's. I want to ask you about growth stocks in general. I was listening to an interview you did with Jeremy Schwartz last year, and you were talking about how, although obviously you can argue that the FANG stocks are overvalued, you also were talking about what's going on beneath the surface as people try to find the next Facebook and the next Google. You know, that may be driving even more overvaluation behind those companies. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about growth in general and, and that concept you were talking about. Yeah, Tesla, right? I mean, like, you know, there, there are a lot of these examples where, uh, where people are trying to find the next Facebook and Google in advance. Some of it, obviously, is hindsight bias, right? It seems so obvious. I mean, who didn't know that Google was going to be the winner when they came out in 1998 and everyone was, you know, buying AOL and, uh, and Netscape? Remember Netscape? And, oh, yeah, I mean, it was so obvious that Google was going to win or that Amazon was started selling books in the late 90s that it was going to be this behemoth. Yeah, it's so obvious, right? Um, so, yes, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously if you just apply it going forward, it's far from obvious. If I said to you what's going to be the dominant company over the next 20 years, who the heck knows the answer? Um, so that's some of it. But also, you know, we're, we are living in a period where, um, you know, it's interesting. In general, if you looked at the, if you looked at the evidence that we have, um, the body of evidence that we have that explains um, expected returns, in general, what you would see is that, Low, low valuation, highly profitable stocks tend to do really well. Um, that's the intersection, if you want to think about it this way, of value and quality. Those, those stocks tend to have high expected returns. That's what all the evidence that we have tells us. In the last five years, the stocks that have, been, that have done the best have been the high valuation, low profitable stocks. And, and, um, and, and that tells you two things. One is that people are, are, are using the stock market to some extent as, as, as a lotto to try to bet on what they think is going to be the next home run. But also that has a tendency to create 
self-fulfilling prophecies, right? I mean, if you buy, if people start to pile into stocks that are uh, that have not made money, but everybody believes will make money and their stock goes up, then that adds confidence to, to people who are coming in later that, that this, this theory must be true. Tesla is a perfect example. I don't, I can't tell you if Tesla is gonna is gonna take over the, you know, the car the car industry or not. But the more that that stock continues to skyrocket, the more people start to believe that this is going to be true and is inevitable, and that brings more people into the market. So yeah, I I see a lot of that behavior, and all I can say about it is it's just not likely to end well for most people because you're going to be right about some companies, you're going to be wrong about the vast majority of them. And to the extent that you're putting real money behind this, you're going to lose real money behind this, and it's just going to be it's going to be a mess, I think, for a lot of people. Well, yeah, and that's one of the things. I think there's like, um, you know, with all these new investors that have come online this year. I mean, you know, you've had millions of beginning investors getting into the market for the first time ever, and all they've really experienced for the most part is this hockey stick like you know, performance um, with some of these names that you're talking about. And so on the one hand, it's, I feel like it's good that they're investing in the market and sort of seeing, I guess, the power of investing in stocks, especially when they do well, but it's bad because I feel like this isn't reality in terms of the performance of stocks or the vast, you know, this periods like this come around maybe once every 10 or 15 years in terms of the, you know, how well stocks have done in the past six months. So. I don't know. I think there's there's some pluses here, but then like to your point, a lot there's going to be a lot of minuses when stuff goes down and people can't handle it. And that and the you know the the, the performance that they've gotten, I think it, it breeds overconfidence. You know, people get you know the, the bias of you know I'm I'm the best stock picker in the world because they were only investing at a time when you know things were going basically straight up. So I don't know. That's just. Well said, Justin. I, you know, I take a lot of heat uh, for for basically saying that all of these things are good. All all the ways that we're democratizing markets are good, because ultimately, you know, um, experience is the best teacher. Investors are not going to be able to learn anything unless you give them access to markets and let them make mistakes. That's how we all learn. Every portfolio manager will say the best teacher was the bad decisions that they made. Um, and so, but on the other hand, those those mistakes are not cheap. And so, um, and so I think, you know, there is a plus and a minus to this, but in my opinion, the best we can do from a public policy perspective is to say, okay, we will give people these tools. We will let them make the mistakes, but we will do whatever we can as a, as a, as a regulatory community, as a, as a community of financial writers and observers to, to try to impart the unequivocal lessons of what could happen if you take these things to extreme and try to prevent as many people from making the extreme choices granting that some of them will and i don't know that there's anything you can do about that except take away access for everyone and i just don't think that's a that's a that's a good or even realistic solution given given what's going on with growth here one of the things many value investors myself included are thinking is all right it's time to add some exposure to value and you know in fairness we were probably thinking that about three years ago as well not just now but i wonder what you think about that idea that when a factor is out of favor when something that's worked over the long term is not working now that you can add exposure to it and do it in such a way that you can actually enhance your returns? Or, or if you think that factor timing thing is basically, you know, more of a difficult thing than is worth it for many people. The timing, the big, the big enchilada. Um, well, I think, okay, so, you know, that's a really interesting subject in my opinion, but let's take a step back for just a minute and just define timing because people think about timing in different ways. 
Um, there's timing on the one hand, there's like all in all out timing. Like, I think value is going to do great. I'm going to buy, I'm going to sell all my growth and buy value. Uh, forget growth for a minute. Let's just say like, you know, let, let's take the factors that people generally agree on quality, momentum, whatever. Right. I think value is going to be momentum over the next 10 years. I'm going to sell all my momentum by all value or vice versa. Right. I call that sort of like all in all out moves. And then there's like the tilts, you know, I think value is going to do better than momentum. I'm going to have, you know, rather than have 50, 50 exposure, I'm going to have 60, 40 exposure, 70, 30 exposure. As far as I can tell, all in all out market timing, whether it's between stocks and bonds or stocks and cash or factors or whatever it is, doesn't work. Or at least let me say it this way. I have begged I, every time I've spoken publicly and privately, I have begged every person listening. If you have evidence, of some sort of back test that shows a binary market timing scheme. On any asset class in any regime, please send it to me. I wanna see one example. I have never seen it. No one has ever taken me up on this. So I think I can confidently say binary market timing doesn't work. Like I said, whether it's factors, whether it's stocks and cash, whatever it is, forget about it. The more interesting question is whether tilts work. And what I would say about it is, in general, I think there's a lot of evidence that it, that it can work modestly if done systematically and measuredly, um, but the T-stats are weak. In other words, um, in other words uh, you might be able to find, sorry, for, for, for those listening who, don't, who, who, who are not statisticians, the question is always, is the evidence robust enough that we can have confidence? That it's that we can say that it's not that it's not random chance, right? And what statisticians will say is statistically, excuse me, significant. And what's used for that is generally speaking a T statistic. Right? So um, in general, the 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 evidence around you know tilts tends to be not incredibly robust. So it might be luck, it might not be, but but I think there's enough evidence that you could try it and 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 be okay. But and here's a big but, with respect to factors, you have to ask yourself, what is gonna be the impact on the portfolio? So let me give you an example. Let's say your portfolio is 50% equities and 50% bonds. And now you're doing factor timing on the 50% that's, that's stocks. Now, even if you get value add, that's gonna be diluted by 50%. So the overall result of the portfolio will be even weaker than the general weak result that you'll get from timing factors to begin with. So what I would say to you is, if you want to put in tilts around factors, if you want to say value is has underperformed, therefore it should outperform in the next 10, 10 years, I'm behind you all the way. I think these tilts are, in general, like I said, if you do it systematically and measuredly, I think it's fine. Um, you might lose, you might win, but you won't win or lose by a ton that you'll have tons of regret. Um, but just keep in mind that there's a lot bigger questions in your portfolio that you should get to before you ever get to factor time. You should think about how much beta you have in your, how much stocks versus bonds you have in your portfolio. You should ask yourself whether you're tracking the broad market or whether you have factors in there at all. After you sort all that out, then I think it's fine to to, to engage in some modest, uh, in some modest, you know, tilts around factors. And yeah, I mean, to ask now to answer your question more directly, I, I do believe that in the coming years, value is going to outperform. If you want to add a little bit more value to your portfolio, I think that's a good idea. I support that. Yeah, you know, what we've seen is the behavioral part of that can be can be the challenging part because people, you know, when you're adding these tilts, people think they're going to get the timing of it right. And, and you're never going to get the timing of it right. So you're probably going to be early and you're probably going to be underperforming because you did it. And then the ability to stick with it 
until it finally goes in your favor is, is probably the hardest part of it, at least from what we've seen. A hundred percent. And I would go further. I would say, I would say be, this isn't a free lunch. So being early is the penalty, right? I mean, by definition, you can't get there late and you're not going to get there on the day. So there's only one alternative, which is you got to be early. And so, and so you, to the extent that you're going to be right, that you're going to, you're going to get paid for that judgment. The, the price that you're going to pay is to be there early and to suffer. And if you're not willing to suffer, forget about it. You're not going to get paid at all. But that's, I would argue that's the, it's not a free lunch and that's, that's the price you're going to pay. One of the um, things I want to ask you about is the role of bonds in uh, a portfolio. So basically bonds have, you know, been a great diversifier for stocks in the long run. And typically they're offering, you know, investors some type of yield as well. So investors get paid back um, in most cases, but with rates where they are, um, some have argued that, you know, bonds, basically you should, you shouldn't even be holding bonds in your portfolio because, you know, if you have any inflation, you're probably going to lose money, um, on them, but you know, what are your, so do you have any thoughts on sort of the use of fixed income and bonds in, in a portfolio starting today? Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, um, several thoughts. One is, um, the most obvious, which is, you know, uh, the, the bonds, I mean, bonds are in the portfolio to, to stabilize a portfolio, right? I mean, if no one cared about volatility, you probably would just have an all stock, um, you know, given everything we know about, again, the equity risk premium and so on. So, so the first question I think for investors is, you know, how much, how much volatility dampening do you want? In other words, how much risk do you want to take? And to the extent that you want to take less, than the amount of risk that is going to be, is gonna land in your lap by virtue of having an all stock portfolio, you really have no choice but to inject some bonds into the um, The second thing is, I think just given the environment, you're just, we just have an unpalatable choice in front of us. Um, you can either reach for, you know, if you don't like what sort of safe bonds are giving you, you can take more risk and reach for, reach for yield. Um, but, you know, understand that you're taking more risk there, or you can just be more conservative and take less yield. I don't know that there is necessarily a free lunch there. You're just going to have to make, you're just going to have to decide what's more important, you yield or low risk, right? Okay, so there's that. Having said all that, I think there's one interesting wrinkle in this particular bond market that I think is underappreciated. And that is right now, let me take a step back for a minute. The bond market's there are some esoteric premiums built into bond markets. I don't think we need to get into those necessarily. But the big two are term risk and credit risk, right? The, the longer the maturity, the more you expect to get paid, assuming it's an up, you know, upwardly sloping curve. And the, more, and the, the less creditworthy the borrower, the more you expect to get paid. That's the credit. So term and credit. It happens that in this market, the credit premium is way higher than the term. premium. If you look at what's happened to term, just look at treasuries, for example. The difference between buying a two-year treasury, 10-year treasury, you're not going to get paid a lot of money. But the difference between buying treasuries and buying high-yield bonds is huge. It's like four or 500 basis points. So what does that mean? What that means is you have an opportunity if you want it. Um, if you're just buying the broad bond market, let's just say, let's say you're buying the ag. If you're buying the ag, you're getting a yield of, say, 110, 111, let's say 110 basis points, roughly. And you're getting a weighted average uh, um, uh, credit uh, of let's say credit rating of double A, let's just say. So you can take that if you want, um, but you can do something different. You can say, okay, since I'm not getting to pay term, instead of buying the ag, I'm gonna disaggregate the ag and I'm gonna buy the ag and its components only short-term. So I'm gonna buy short-term treasury, I'm gonna buy short-term corporates, investment corporates, 
and I'm going to buy mortgage-backed security. And instead of getting a six duration, you're going to take a roughly a two duration. And then, in order to make up for the in order to make up for for the for the yield, because your yield is now going to go down from let's say 110 basis points to roughly 40 or 50 basis points, you can just inject a little bit of high yield, 10 to 15 percent of a yield play. Say preferreds, maybe a combination of preferreds, maybe emerging debt, maybe U.S. high yield debt. And what you'll end up with is you'll end up with a portfolio that has the same weighted average credit rating, a double A, again, weighted average, and a yield that has roughly the same as the AG, 110, 120 basis points, only with a lot less duration. So what have you done? You've got the same yield, you've taken less term risk, and you've taken the exact same credit risk. That is a free lunch. And it's a free lunch just by virtue of the fact that the term premium just happens to be dwarfed in this moment by the credit, by the credit. That's not going to last forever. If you don't want to be, if you don't want to keep an eye on this stuff, I would say, don't even bother with what I've just said, buy the ag and forget about it and leave it alone. Be just one follow-up there. You can build that with um, ETFs. I mean, couldn't you, could you effectively try to back into that through different ETF um, holdings? No, 100%. Thanks for asking that because I mean that specifically with, with ETFs. And I'll give you just I'll give you a very straightforward example. You could buy you could buy like say I'll pick on Vanguard because they're huge and everybody knows about them. Um, but for disclosure, I own Vanguard funds. My asset management firm uses Vanguard funds, um, but I'll use them because they're huge and everybody knows about them. You could buy Vanguard's you know AG, uh, their BND fund, which is the global uh, which is the U.S. aggregate bond market. Or like I said, you could disaggregate it. You can buy their short-term um, corporate ETF, their short-term Treasury ETF and their MBS ETF, and if you if you blend those in roughly the same uh, blend as the AG, you'll get the AG with a shorter duration. Um, and and then you can just pile in the ETFs, high yield ETFs, emerging market debt ETFs, all the things that I mentioned. You can do very easily do with an ETF portfolio. What do you think about the argument that stocks and bonds aren't enough anymore? You know, with with, with some people thinking inflation is coming, many people are arguing now that all right, you need some gold or you need some commodities or something, and your, your average investor should have those things in your portfolio. What do you think about that? Do you think those belong in your average investor's portfolio? Well, it depends. So inflation, so it depends on what the goal is. I've always thought that, um, that hedging for inflation, hedging a portfolio for inflation um, is both tricky and straightforward simultaneously. The reason I say it's tricky is if you're going to say gold is a good inflation hedge, I'm going to ask you how much of your portfolio is going to be in gold. And what you're going to say to me probably is 5 or 10%. And I'm going to say to you, hang on a minute, 5 or 10% of your portfolio in gold is going to be an inflation hedge? I don't think so. So now if you're telling me you believe, you have conviction that gold is a good inflation hedge and you're willing to put all your money in gold or 80% of your money in gold, I say to you, I think that's a bad idea. But at least I understand the thesis. The way most people argue about having gold in their portfolios and inflation hedge is completely nonsensical, because like I said, they're not going to own it in any, in any meaningful uh, uh, bite. And I would say the same thing about commodities generally. I would say the same thing about real estate. I would say the same thing about tips. Tips are an inflation hedge. Yeah, tips are an inflation hedge by definition. How much of your portfolio is in tips? 3%? Okay. Can we please get serious about this conversation? So now the question is, can you build a portfolio where most of the assets are, in, are, are inherently an inflation hedge? And I think you can in this moment. And this is what I would say. Stocks, I think, are, are, the, are, are the best inflation hedge 
that could could foreseeably make up a good chunk of your portfolio. Are they a perfect inflation hedge? No, obviously not. Did they leave some money on the table during the 1970s and the stagflation period? Yes. But I think of the things that could could conceivably make up a good junk, chunk of your portfolio, stocks are the best thing you have. The other thing that's very good, in my opinion, is short-term bonds. Because what'll happen is if inflation goes up, the short-term interest rate's gonna go up. And so if you don't have a lot of duration in your portfolio, you're gonna be reinvesting quickly in that new, in the new, uh, in the new interest rate. And that should keep up, which is why I like, going back to the conversation we just had about, about taking the duration of your portfolio down, but not giving up on the yield by injecting some higher, some, uh, some, some more credit risk into your portfolio. I think that does the trick. If you have stocks, you have short duration, um, short duration bonds, I think you have a pretty good inflation hedge across the portfolio that at least has a realistic opportunity to keep up with inflation. The rest of the stuff around the edges, I'd say, you know, if it makes you feel better, go for it. But just be aware that just that's not gonna it's not gonna have have meaningful impact on keeping up with inflation. I want to switch gears for a second and talk about market valuation. Um, you know, no matter how you look at the market valuation right now, it seems relatively high, at least on a historical basis. But you had a great debate with Barry uh, Ritholtz in one of your Bloomberg columns that I really liked because you guys were going back and forth on this topic. And the hard thing for individual investors to figure out is, all right, the market's expensive. What do I do with that? What does that mean to me? And and that was sort of a topic you guys were going back and forth. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. What should an individual investor look at this market valuation as right now? And what what does it mean to them? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to our conversation about, about market timing. So one of the things I'll say right out of the gate is you cannot use valuation um, to get in and out of the market because it's just not going to work. Um, th there's, there's no mechanic that I know about that will work. And, and by the way, let me explain in this, in this context why it won't work. Because there, there's not, the, the valuations, um, and depending on the valuation metric, we can get into that if you guys want. But um, valuations, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a fairly robust correlation between valuations and expected returns, forward returns. Um, but that correlation is not perfect. It's not one, which means that sometimes the, sometimes the signal is going to fail on you. And if you're using it as a way to get in and out of the markets constantly, you're going to be wrong enough time that the times that you're wrong are going to basically take all the gains when you were right, and you're going to end up probably in negative territory. That's even if you manage to do it in a systematic way. So forget about it. Don't use valuation to get in and out of market. Where valuation, I think, is useful is in two ways. One is it's useful in planning. Because, you know, everyone who's done financial planning knows you've got to make some assumptions about what the future return is going to be. In general, when valuations are high, the return is going to be lower, and valuations are low, returns um, are going to be higher. And so that's a useful planning um, tool. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing is for people who are more adventurous, it is a useful way, I think, to try to tilt your portfolio. So for example, if the earnings yield, um, that, you know, if you take the P and you flip it on its head, you get an earnings yield. The earnings yield is very useful. People don't think about it often in that way, but they should, because the earnings yield gives you something to, to, to at least say, this is what future returns might be. Right? So if the earnings yield is 3%, um, um, and, the, and, and your return from bonds is, say, 2%, that's one proposition. On the other hand, if your earnings yield is 7% and your yield from, from bonds is 2%, that's a completely different proposition. In the latter, you might say, I'll just own more stocks because I think I'm going to get a higher return. Um, in the, in the, so, so that's where I think it comes in handy. It also comes in handy for comparing across regions. 
So for example, right now, the earnings yield is higher outside the US than it is in the US, in, in, inside the US. If you're willing to go overseas, then I think, um, then I think you know, owning more overseas stocks can be helpful. And that's where I think valuation can give you some signal as to what you can expect. And when I was listening to your interview with uh, Jeremy Schwartz, another thing you talked about was this whole concept of when the forward PE and the CAPE deviate from each other, and that, that might be an indication of something. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about valuations, uh, or at least trying to figure out what the forward returns are going to be, what are we talking about, right? And I think this is where you have to disaggregate the returns, you know, the, where do the returns come from? Dividend yield, earnings growth, and changes in valuation. And um, what, the, what the CAPE, what the cyclically adjusted PE ratio does for you very nicely, is it sort of normalizes um, both the earnings growth and the changes in the valuation over time. What I mean by that is, um, if you look at long-term earnings growth, it's roughly, it's been, historically, it's been nominal, uh, but so, you know, before inflation, roughly four to five percent a year, the, which, is, which is, if you think about it in economic terms, it's a very sensible growth rate. The problem is in the near term, that growth rate is insane. It's all over the board. I mean, in some years, you can get growth rate of 20%, some years it can be negative 10, it's all over the place. People don't appreciate the fact that earnings growth can be just as volatile as stock prices. So, so what you need is you need some sort of mechanism to, 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 to iron out those, those changes in valuation in, uh, in earnings growth, because otherwise your PE is going to be, is just going to be completely unstable. For example, in years where earnings growth is very high, your PE is going to look really attractive, right? Because you have high earnings relative to price, you're going to have a short PE. What happens when, uh, what happens when earnings, you know, fall off a cliff? All of a sudden your PE is going to be very high. So you're going to get the exact opposite signal of week one. It's going to be telling you to buy when earnings are high, which is not going to be true. And it's going to tell you to sell when earnings are low, which is also not true, right? So what the tape does for you is it just sort of flattens it all out. So you get rid of the noise. The forward PE, on the other hand, is you can think about the forward PE as sort of a momentum mechanism. In other words, it, it really it builds on whatever the short-term fluctuation is in earnings. So in years when earnings, are, earnings growth is high, um, earnings estimates are going to be high, and earnings <laughs> in years when earnings growth is low, earnings estimates are going to be low. So again, you have that contra signal problem. And so by comparing the cave to forward PEs, you have some idea of where this problem is, is is sort of more pronounced and less pronounced. And it happens that in years when those things are when when those two things converge, um, what it's telling you is that in general, it's a warning signal that the forward estimates are probably not reliable. And, um, and before, I haven't looked at the numbers very recently, but before the pandemic, it happened that the difference between the CAPE and the forward PEs were some of the high on record, if not the highest on record, depending on how you measure them. That's, that what that's telling you is that forward PEs are probably very unreliable. As we reach uh, get towards the end here, I had one more question I want to ask you about passive investing. Um, obviously, the rise of passive has been a good thing for investors. You know, it's it's lowered fees. It's gotten money away from active managers who, as a whole, have a pretty bad tra track record. But there's concern that it's distorting the market, and that as as money flows in without respect to valuation, as, as those regular 401k contributions come in, you've probably you've probably seen Mike Green's work. You know that is driving up these big stocks relative to other stocks. And it's actually, you know, impacting the market in such a way that, you know, that, that it's unfairly benefiting those companies. And I was wondering if what you think about that. And if you think passive investing is actually impacting the market and actually changing the relative valuation of stocks. 
You know, going back again to the burden of proof, I hear that. Um, I would say that I just, I don't, I have not yet seen evidence to be convinced that that's something people should worry about. There's, 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 there's so much to untangle there. Um, one is that, you know, this, you know, we've had situations in the past where, you know, the market has done really well. The U.S. market has done really well relative to bonds, relative to other things. You know, so, so this period is not necessarily new. And in those prior periods, you, you didn't have this sort of uh, move to passive investing. Um, and so, and so, you know, how do we think about those prior periods? I mean, in other words, in other words, the, 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 there's obviously a correlation in this period between the flows to passive and the market doing well. The question is, is there causation there? And that's, I think, very, very tricky to know. The other thing is that, you know, what are we saying about this um, in terms of in terms of what this actually means for business? Imagine a situation. Let's just do a thought experiment. Imagine a situation where 100% of assets are tracking the broad market market cap indexes. Let's just say. What does that mean for underlying businesses? Does that mean that if me and you own a business, we're competitors, we're going to stop competing with each other because, because we have shareholders that own both of our stock? I doubt that. We still want to make money, right? We still want to win. Um, we're still going to compete. I just don't see ultimately what that has to do with the economics of firms. And ultimately, it's the economics of firms that drive stock prices. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to have an impact on the way that, um, that businesses behave, which is which is a lot of the criticism that you hear, I think, around the subject. The other thing is, what does it even mean to say active versus passive? I mean, as you know, you know, traditionally a lot of active managers, and to this day, look a lot like a passive benchmark. So it's not even clear to me that there is this fine distinction between passive and active. And complicating it further is the fact that passive now. Um, does not only refer to things that track the market cap, but it also refers to all these factor um, indexes that are effectively active managers, as we know, right? Because they're sorting on PEs and, and all the things that active managers sort on, you know, whether it's value or quality or whatever, moment, or momentum or whatever it is. So it's not even clear to me as a proposition that you're going to have a situation in any period where, um, where ultimately, you know, the, the preponderance even, forget the majority, the preponderance of assets will be tracking market cap-based indexes. So for all those reasons, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's, um, that it's, I'm not ruling it out of hand, right? I'm just saying that it's, to me, it's far from clear that we're anywhere near having the evidence to be able to say that this is something we should worry about. There are many, I think there are many, many bigger things to worry about. Do you think there's a point where you do worry about it? I mean, if it's, if it's say 40, 45% of the market now passive, whatever, whatever they say it is, I mean, do you think if it continues this way and it's 60 or 70, is there a point where we need to be worried about it? Or is, is there always, you know, as long as there's a reasonable number of active managers, we're still probably okay. You know, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's all evidence dependent. I think if we see evidence, so, I think it's that I don't know that I would necessarily go by the amount of the percentage of assets that are tracking the broad market. I think for me, it would be what impact is there any evidence that this is having an impact on the way businesses behave? And is there any evidence that, um, that there is a disconnect between the way firms are priced and the underlying economics? Um, is, there, um, is there a sustained period where whatever the flows are, the, the, let's call it the passive flows to a particular market? Is having an impact on the performance of that market relative to other markets. Yeah, I mean, if those, if that, if that type of evidence starts to pile on, then I think I would, 
I would start to become, uh, well, I don't know that I'd be concerned to be honest, but I would at least start to pay attention. But can I just say this? It seems to me the end game has to be that most people are just hugging the broad market because, um, because I, I don't see any other alternative to be honest. Uh, you know, in general, I mean, I think that's the that's going to be the sensible plan for most investors. And so I think I think we, we we're sort of going to to the extent that we are concerned about that. I think we're going to have to start asking questions like what are the public policy responses to that? Are there going to be negative externalities? What do we do about that now? Because I, I just think this day is coming. I just don't think we have any evidence that this is going to be a problem. But it's fun to talk about. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy reading the columns about it as well as anyone. I just, I've not seen any evidence to be concerned about it. Well, like Ben Graham, I think it's the Graham quote, like in the short run, the market's a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. So to your point, as these businesses execute and do well and make money, become more profitable, they should in the long run be the ones that are rewarded. Yeah, I think it's as simple as that. And I, and I, think, I think market cap indexes are always going to, I really believe this, they're always going to reflect that. I just think in the long run, I, I think markets are very smart. And I don't think you need a whole lot of uh, market participants to, uh, to correct prices. I mean, again, a thought experiment. Imagine a situation where there was clear disconnect between fundamentals and price. The three of us would just start a fund and we would just mint money on it all day long until it went away, right? That's what would happen. Uh, it, it wouldn't take a whole lot of participants to do that. Um for the last question, I wanted to kind of step outside the investing world for a second. And this goes back to something we were talking about before the actual recording started. Um, and this has to do with sort of this remote work or working from home thing that everyone's sort of dealing with. So, I mean, obviously we're a small company. We've worked remotely for a number of years. I mean, you're a very small company. Like you were saying, you have a few different offices of where you work out of, but you know, you're obviously disciplined in how you sort of run the business, but you're effectively doing it yourself. Um, so, you know, and I think a lot of people are sort of struggling with this if they've never really worked from home or by themselves, if they've been in an office environment around people, they probably are, are wrestling with this. So I don't know, do you have any, just to kind of wrap it up, I mean, do you have any thoughts around, you know, how people might be able to better deal with it if they're struggling with that? Um, and things that you've kind of done in your own sort of working uh, environment to make it so, you know, you're not banging your head against the wall because you're not talking to anyone. <laughs> you know, I, I wish, uh, yeah, it's funny. I, uh, I wish I had a magic answer. I mean, I think, um, I think the one thing I would say, the closest thing I have to a magic answer is I think you have to be laser focused on what works and what doesn't work for you. And you have to be willing to make changes you have to be willing to experiment with with your with whatever your work environment is until you get to a place where you can actually get your work done right it helps to like your work obviously um i find working um from home i don't do it always but I, when i do do it i find it to be an incredible luxury personally because it's quiet and i can think um and i can you know and i can take my time and doing what i need to do um and um, and so for me it's great uh, a lot of people find it very distracting to not have distractions, funny as that may sound. And so I think you have to create distractions in order to in order to do it. I mean, I think you you, you have to sort of simulate what whatever an office environment is for you. I think you have to try to simulate it. If that means getting on the phone, talking to people. If that means getting on Zoom, whatever it is. If that means taking regular breaks to get up and walk around. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I I personally enjoy it, and 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 it's sort of. Um, 
you know, I'm tempted to just say, and you should enjoy it too, you know, just chill and enjoy the quiet. But I recognize that it's more complicated than that. And the only advice I can give is when I, when things don't work for me, I immediately change them. And not, you know, I don't get, I don't get wet at any particular approach. And I think, I think you're just going to have to experiment until you get it right for you. I think that's a great, I think that's a great thought. I think those are good points. Um, okay. So I, you know, we're kind of coming up on an hour here. Um, I think we've really probably just scratched the surface with you because you've written about so many different things. Um, and hopefully we can have you on again and talk about more of the interesting stuff that you're writing about and thinking about. But um, if people uh, want to go to learn more about you, um, where should they go to find out more? Oh man, I am a, uh, as my friends will tell you, I am a notoriously private person. There's very few places you can go to find out more about me. No, um, well, I, uh, but I'm also a very candid person. I hope, I hope this is shown. Um, so you can ask me if you want, but, uh, but you know, I would say, you know, my editor, um, who I admire very much, um, one of my editors at Bloomberg, who I admire very much, always says to me, writing reveals you. And, um, and I really believe that writing reveals you. And so I would say, you know, if you want to learn more about me, you should read the stuff I write because I, I think that's, I think that's about as good as it will get. Um, but you know, I um, I run a firm, I run a money management firm, and and people are welcome to go to that site. It's Sparks by Design um, because I think in general investing should be very simple. It should stick to very basic tenets. Um, it should be very easy to understand. Um, but um, but yeah, I would say you know just basically interviews and writing. I I, I don't really know anywhere else uh, that people can go. That's great, Nir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank for you for doing me. this. I really this is great. This conversation. And like I said, it's very luxurious to be able to just really unpack ideas and spend time, real time talking. It's, uh, it's not a luxury you get doing TV interviews very often. So thank you. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.